All right, we're going to continue in the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to take on a, a strange text uh, today. It's the, the, the text that deals with the replacement of Judas Iscariot, uh, and, but I want to approach it um, from a kind of a pastoral angle that I think, is, I think will be helpful. Um, and basically what I want to focus in, in on is how this text speaks to decision-making in the will of God. Uh, this text actually gives us a lot of insight into how do we, as God's people, make decisions that include God in the decision and allow for him by his spirit to actually guide and direct us. And this is a, this is a big, robust question that uh, over the years as a pastor, I have been asked many times, uh, how do I know what the will of God is? How do I discover what it is that I ought to do? Uh, and I think that this particular text gives us some great insights, some principles uh, that we can gather uh, on this big, daunting question that is an important question uh, for us as a community of faith. Uh, because remember what I say about salvation. Salvation is about you and I not getting out of hell and getting into heaven, but it's about God literally putting his spirit within us as we come under his rule. He's not just our savior, he's our Lord. Sin in its essence is our rejection or our rebellion against God's rule. Grace and salvation by very definition, is the freedom that we experience when we come under that rule, once again, recognizing that we make horrible masters and Jesus alone is the good master who sets us free. That's an important principle for us to cling to as Christians. If you are going in and in through your days, day in and day out, making decisions for yourself without ever taking into consideration King Jesus, there is something fundamentally wrong with your understanding of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So beginning in verses 12 through 14, remember last week we ended with the powerful and beautiful ascension of Christ, that the completion of his work was not simply the resurrection, uh, but his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension are all a part of his saving reality. Uh, his ascension to the right hand of the Father is his return to the glory, the glory that he left behind when he came to earth. His ascension gives us the great promise and the great hope that he will come again. His ascension actually fulfills his promise to the church that it's good that I go to the Father because if I did not go to the Father, then the Spirit would not come to you, which we're going to consider next week, which is the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I think that this is important. His return to, the, to God's space, to the heavens, is, is actually the means by which his very Spirit now comes to dwell within those who place their faith in him. And so... In verses 12 through 14, what was the thing that Jesus told them to do before his ascension? He told them to go and wait for the promise of the coming one, the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. That's the only thing he told them to do, which I think raises questions about them actually doing more than what he asked them to do in this particular text. But all we can do is speculate because this is a history recorded and it doesn't always give us the insights or even whether or not this was God's will that they make the decision that they're about to make uh, within the text. All we can do is read it and try to learn lessons from it uh, as, as they appear to us. 
So it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So first of all, in trying to discover the will of God, trying to discover direction from God, I think that the first thing we see is this, this act of obedience. They're doing the very thing that they were called to do. Ten days between the ascension of Jesus and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And over those 10 days, they dedicated themselves to prayer. We as a people, as a, as a church, as a community of faith, need to recognize that prayer is a non-negotiable for the victorious Christian life. And yet it is often the most neglected discipline within the church. We can have a 1,000 to 1,200 people show up on a Sunday here, and we do a prayer meeting, and we have uh, you know, the faithful 30 or 40. And I often say that the church historically has been carried on the shoulders of a few, that I agree with C.S. Lewis that the vast majority of Christians live with this written over their lives, saved soul, wasted life. And the wasted life comes from not actually taking advantage of the freedom that God has given you to actually seek his face. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you're asking for the wrong thing. The thing that I want us to see within this text is that there is an obedience to Jesus's command. And the question that I would have for you is if you were in the position of these 120 individuals that were there praying awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit, they don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. And yet they are seeking God's face. They are praying diligently without ceasing. Not only are they doing that, but they're doing it together of one accord. That doesn't just mean that they're assembled in the same place, but they actually have the same heart and mind requesting the same thing. They are requesting the very thing that God promised them, and they are not going to leave until they receive it. But I think about us, I think about the all-night prayer meetings that we, we used to do, and even I would be like, 4 a.m., I'd be, I would just like, okay, I said we'd go till 5, but I'm falling asleep, and so I am the lead pastor, therefore, tonight it shall be 4 a.m. And then it was like, maybe 3.30. Then I'm like, maybe we should just go till midnight. Uh, and I think that this is the, our inability to press in, to go beyond the norm, to actually push in with a, with a perseverance that says, I will not rest until God breaks into my life and power. Do we have that kind of stick to today? I think in an age in which the TED Talk reigns supreme, where the attention span is no more than 15 minutes, where Twitter is about all the information one can take in, is, what is it, 150 characters, I think that this is problematic when it comes to the need for patience in prayer. And I think what's powerful is that you think, what, what if they had actually given up after like, man, we've been praying for eight days Actually, let's just say we've been praying for seven days. That's a perfect number. Nothing's happened. Let's go home. Would Pentecost have come? <laughs> That's silly to speculate those questions, but the thing is, is that they waited until it did. 
And when I look at this, I'm convicted because I'm not sure that I would have. And so I look at this, this passage and I see that these people are fulfilling the very words that Paul himself writes later to the church in, in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Pray without ceasing. It means that we are to live with a constant awareness of God's presence in our lives. You ever read that little book um, called Practicing the Presence? practicing the presence of God. It's a simple little book, with, but the idea is that we are to live, that the key to Christian living, the victorious Christian life, is a life that is always aware of God's nearness, that we practice that presence. So when Paul says pray without ceasing, he isn't saying verbally communicate, talk out loud all day long, 24-7. Prayer can be also internal. It's that constant, I pray while I preach <laughs> in my head. I'm like, Sweet Lord Jesus, I don't know what I was going to say. Bring it to me now. For the love of God, <laughs> you have no idea the stress of running a 40-minute monologue. <laughs> There's like the time when the word just won't come and you're just like, it's like he's, he's sensing the Lord. If I get silent or just become mute for a second, just at least in your mind, believe that it's because I'm directly communing with God in that moment, and it's not just an absent blank spot in my brain, which it actually is probably a blank spot. Uh, but I think that this is the key. The praying without ceasing is that internal realization that God has not left us alone to our own devices, but that he has actually given us his spirit. And what is the purpose of him saving us? Prayer speaks to this purpose. The purpose of God saving us is to restore to you and I a right relationship with himself. And if the restoration of relationship with himself is actually real, what happens in a real relationship? You talk, you communicate, you have intimacy. And intimacy doesn't happen without communication. Why do marriages fail? Because there's no communication or bad communication or perpetual conflict. And I think that this gives us a picture of their being together of one accord. This is apostolic church stuff here. And this is what's powerful about this passage. They don't even have the Holy Spirit yet, and yet they're being obedient to one of the key factors in the Christian life, and a factor that cannot be, cannot be gone without the church experiencing total deadness. And that is that any living church must, by its very definition, be a church that communicates with its God. We need to be a people that pray. Romans 12, 2 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think that Calvin was right when he said that within this passage, there are two essentials for true prayer, namely that they persevered and that they were of one mind. This one accord, I love this. It says all these were one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together, this togetherness, it does imply something more than just being assembled uh, together. You and I, what makes the gospel attractive to the world outside of the church is when there is a sense of togetherness, a sense of a one accord where the Spirit of God is guiding us together as a community of faith toward a common goal. 
And when we come together as a church and when I'm preaching the word or whoever it is that's up here preaching and you as a part of the community, you aren't just, you aren't just a passive listener, you're an active participant in the proclamation of the gospel. And that's that all together component. And something really profound does that when we pray together. I think that Karl Barth was right when he said, when he said a prayer, he goes, whenever I pray, I begin by gathering with others. He did not see prayer as primarily something that we do by ourselves. He sees prayer as something that we do together. Uh, it's interesting. Jesus, yes, often got alone with the Father, but he was the Son of God. And when he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? And when you pray, pray like this, our Father. It's a family prayer, not my Father, but our Father. Even when you're praying alone, you're praying on behalf of others. Even when you're praying alone, you're still praying with the, with the concept of the community of faith. Good prayer is prayer that isn't primarily about you, but it's a primarily about God's work in God's world amongst God's people. And so I think that this is, this is important. They were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together. And I think this is important to note. Together with the women and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. How fascinating the very mother of Jesus. I, I think that when you look at the Gospel of John and you see that Mary is standing before the cross and John, the apostle, comes up next to her and Jesus says, uh, he, says behold, he says, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. And it says, from that day forward, John took her into his home. Uh, and you think about the early the eyewitnesses to the life the death and resurrection of, of Jesus and his ascension, that his mother was able to share with them uh, the life of Christ, things that, they, that only she would be privy to, that she was a part of these, these conversations. Very profound when you really think about it. Uh, the, the fact that these people were actual eyewitnesses to Jesus walking on the earth. They saw him live they saw him teach, they saw him do signs and wonders, they saw him be killed, and they saw him resurrected from the dead, and they actually watched him disappear into God's space, into heaven. And there they are, and I could imagine if you see those things, you're like, we should probably do what he said, we should pray. And I think that maybe sometimes because of our, because we do function so much with what we can actually see with our eyes uh, that we forget that the same principles apply to us today, that Christ, it says, blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. And so I like this because this also shows that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ. Men and women together, praying together, these eyewitnesses awaiting the promise. And so I think that this is, this is a key for us. To discover the will of God, there is no decision-making for the Christian that does not, that does not include, excuse me, that, that, that goes without prayer. You can't make decisions about your life in a God-honoring way if you aren't including him in the decision-making. And I would argue that there is no aspect of your life that God is not interested in. He actually cares about every detail, every nuance of your life. And the question is, is what, what you have called upon you to do is to begin the practice of engaging with him who is available to us. God has given us his spirit to dwell within us, and yet he often goes neglected. 
We do not grab a hold of the resources that are available to us, and we make dumb decisions because we never took the time to actually seek his face in prayer. And I want to just give you five traits that we find in true prayer. The first trait in true prayer is freedom. The basis of prayer, if it is true prayer, prayer is man's freedom before God. What does the gospel do? It sets us free. Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. Before we were born again, what were we? Dead in our sins and trespasses, slaves to sin. When Jesus comes into our life, what does he do? He actually sets us free. And that freedom is not to do what we want, but it is now this newfound freedom to actually be in communion with the living God. That communion was broken before we were saved. But the salvation that came into our lives actually set us free, the freedom to actually fully enter into this relationship, the freedom to fully engage. The basis of prayer is the freedom, the privilege that you now have to commune with God. How sad it is when we misuse that freedom to do what we ought not to do rather than utilizing the freedom that comes to us by the Spirit to actually do what is right. Secondly, true prayer is actually always petition. Now, you may ask, what do you mean? Isn't, doesn't prayer include thanksgiving? Doesn't it, also include, doesn't it also include confession? Doesn't it also include worship? All of those things still from the perspective of a redeemed sinner is petition because even our worship of him comes from him. Even our thanksgiving to him is a gift from him. This is the recognition. When I say petition, it means that when we come to God simply with a request, we come with empty hands. And empty hands are necessary when human hands are to be spread out before God and filled by him. And so Every aspect of prayer has an element of petition because we are coming to him empty, resting upon him to be the source of all the, all the fullness that we desire to live out the life that we want to live and are called to live. The third reality of prayer is that togetherness. The word we, which is frequently occurred in the scriptures, uh, is, and I like this, Bart says it's ontological, not homiletical in character. And what he means by that is that the we in our prayer actually reflects the very nature and essence of God. Let us make man in our image. God within himself is a community, a relational being, and our prayer life is meant to reflect that reality of God's very character. We pray together. We pray as we have the image of God restored in us. And that, is, that image is the ability to actually be in right relationship. And I think that it's important for us as a community. When we have a prayer night, guys, you should come. Even if you're not comfortable praying, just come and sit. But why would we, if prayer is the necessary means by which the power of God historically has broken into the church and brought revivals, why would we not be a church that prays? You know why? Because it's hard. Because it's a difficult pleasure because it's a discipline that requires time. And we like everything instantaneous today. It's something we need to do together. The fourth reality of true prayer is that we need to do it with confidence. True prayer is a prayer which is sure that it's being heard, <laughs> that we come to God believing that he hears us and believing that he answers. Jesus says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask him, who seek him? who knock, 
They expect him to answer because he promises to. Often we, we don't come to God and therefore we receive nothing from God. Or we come to God with request and we think that he didn't answer us when in actuality the answer just may have been no because you asked for the wrong thing. Or he didn't ask. The, the, the true reality around prayer is that we come to a God whom we are saying, you are Lord, you guide, you direct. It says that we can make plans, but God is the one who directs our steps. I think that we can say that God didn't answer my prayer, and, and in reality, we just don't like where he directed our steps. He always answers. We just need to recognize that sometimes the answer is no, because he knows the beginning from the end. Obedience is the fifth trait of true prayer. Prayer rests on a commandment. I always say that it's not simply a privilege to be able to commune with the living God, but it actually is a responsibility. How can we be witnesses to a God that we do not know? How can we be witnesses to a God that we do not spend time with? Prayer is built on obedience. So freedom, petition, togetherness, confidence, and obedience. I think these are the five traits of true prayer, and these are the traits that are being played out by this small community, 120 people. That's all that God is utilizing here that are going to be the, be the seed of what will break out across the entire known world. So powerful. And it began with prayer. Every revival has prayer at its origin. Prayer. Do you know that the revival that broke out in Portland, Oregon, in I think it was like 1906, it began with prayer in like 1889. Uh, and I think that this is really important for us to understand. There was years of prayer by the, by the different church communities in the city of Portland for Portland. And Portland's always been a bit of a Wild West town. And prayers over this city that God would bring a revival. And when it broke out in the city, do you know that the entire downtown businesses closed every day for like two months at noontime to pray? Could you imagine if that happened today? But it took years and years of prep preparation, years of waiting upon the Lord, trusting in his sovereignty, believing him for this, that God wants to do something powerful. And I believe that God wants to bring a revival in Portland again. I, I believe him for it. I started the church on this, this strong, confident belief that God is going to bring a revival in our city in my lifetime. But he also calls me to say, pray and don't cease until it comes. Are you willing to enter into that? These people, aren't you glad that this, these first followers of Jesus, even without the Holy Spirit, we're obedient enough to pray until the Spirit came and broke through in a powerful way. Look at the second component in verses 15 through 20. It says, in those days, so this is where the, the story gets a little interesting. Jesus told them to go and wait. Um, they do make a decision before the coming of the Spirit. And there's rampant conversations among theologians and, and Bible commentators on whether or not this particular decision was a decision that was actually led by God. Um, and on both sides, some say yes, some say no. Some say Paul should have been the 12th apostle. Others say Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. They needed an apostle that actually would sit upon the, the absent throne that Judas left behind. I think that those questions, the scripture doesn't give us enough 
enough information. What it does give us is great principles on what we should do when we don't have all the information. And they do the right thing. It's prayer. And then here, secondly, uh, we'll see the main component in this, in this section of the text, 15 through 20, is the, is the use of Scripture. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. It's not surprising Peter the impulsive would get up and be the first one to break the prayer time. Uh, the company of persons, who was in all about 120, and he said, brothers, brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. Notice the parentheses is an editorial edition by Luke uh, drawing on, on basically the word that was already spreading around the area around the death of Judas. And I do think it's important to note uh, that there are, there are challenging, uh, uh, this is a challenging text because it, it seems to be at odds with the text in Matthew around Judas hanging himself. Uh, and I think that there has been attempts since Augustine to reconcile these two texts. Um, I think that the key idea is the true in both texts, that Judas died, and that Judas <laughs> died horribly, and that Judas betrayed Jesus. And even here, it says, now this man acquired a field. In Matthew's account, Judas, feeling the guilt of over betraying Jesus with a kiss for 30 shekels of silver, what did he do? It says in, in total remorse, it's interesting, when you look at the remorse of Peter and the remorse of Judas, Judas, in his remorse, instead of turning to Jesus for forgiveness, there is literally a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He opened his heart up so much, it says that the devil entered into him. And Jesus spoke, I think, speaking to the devil, said, go and do what you're going to do. And Judas takes this silver as he's feeling this incredible remorse over his decision. And this, what I call repentance in the wrong direction. Uh, he takes the silver and he goes back to the very ones who he betrayed Jesus with the religious leaders, and he throws the silver in on the temple floor. And these men said, we don't want this, this is blood money. And what did they do? They purchased the field. It's with Judas's money, therefore it would be considered a purchase by Judas. And so there is no, I don't believe that there's a contradiction in this statement. Now, this man acquired a field with this reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. This is the challenging part, and there is no good explanation, in my opinion. And falling headlong, uh, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. What an unpleasant, gory picture that is. Um, and I think Bowser is an interesting utilization because uh, metaphorically speaking, and I believe this is actual, uh, but metaphorically, bowels speak of the depth of the human heart, the depths of the human soul, where the deepest secrets are kept. Uh, and I think that this this speaks of the, the darkness of his depths, but also the reality of his death. So some have said, this is kind of classic, is that he hung himself on a, tr on a tree that sat over the field and the branch broke when his body was bloated and it fell and they broke open. It's possible that's just purely an attempt to put together these two texts. Another interesting uh, thing that I read by one commentator uh, was that 
is that hanging actually was not the normal means of suicide, and that another type of hanging in the ancient world um, was actually impaling yourself. I mean, it says hanging. So I, I, don't, I, I, I think that what I accept is that Judas died and that he took his own life. And I think that this is important for us to recognize, and I don't think that we have to reconcile. There are plenty of things. I always say, don't worry about the parts of the Scripture you can't fully explain. Be way more worried about what is clear. And there's a lot. That's even, even Mark Twain, the atheist, said, I'm not bothered by the 99% I don't understand. I'm really bothered by the 1% I do understand. Um, and I think that the book of Acts, this is a great testimony to the reality of Acts. Acts is a recorded history. It doesn't always give us the undercurrent theological details, and this is why it's dangerous to build theological grids out of Acts. It's not meant to be prescriptive. It's meant to tell us, uh, give us a picture uh, of what the apostolic church looked like. It's, it's a 30-year period of time, and it's a very particular text to show us the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his continued work on earth. And so there are many things that, 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 we, will, that we will not be able to give you a, a robust understanding or definition. I don't know why it says, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That's like seeking the will of God and the, and the Spirit's like, meh, I guess, sure. <laughs> so... I'm like, I guess that's what the Spirit does sometimes. So I don't think we can always understand everything, but what can we understand out of this? And this is the question that we have to ask, and this is the important question here. First of all, what does Peter do? Peter stands up and he argues for the replacement of Judas based upon his understanding of Scripture. Now, the disciples during their time following Jesus saw Jesus often utilize Scripture to declare uh, the fulfillment of his own life in regards to the messianic promises of the Old Testament. And at the very end of Luke, Luke was careful to actually record something very important for us. And that was in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, what did it say that he did? It says he opened their minds to understand the scripture. I think this is a really important point because Peter here is acting different than how he acted before. There is a supernatural illumination that occurred in which he is able to actually draw on the Old Testament scriptures to show that this is all in a line with what God's word promised would happen. And why did Judas need to be replaced? Because later in the book of Acts, we see another apostle die. Why didn't they replace that apostle? We see James die. Why didn't we, they replace James? Because Judas actually did something, and it speaks to something that we need to reconcile as followers of Christ, that, that there are many in the church right now that are trying to under, undermine this reality, is that judgment in Scripture is real, that heaven and hell are realities, that Judas actually betrayed Christ, and he wasn't programmed to do so, but he did fulfill the, he fulfilled the scriptures that there would be one who would betray the Messiah. And what happened is this, is, this is what I think is fascinating. I think Judas is a picture of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Judas knew Jesus. 
People always say, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? A blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willfully rejecting the Messiah when you know that he's the Messiah. Willfully, why were the Pharisees and scribes in so much danger? Because they knew that Jesus was doing signs and wonders in the, under the power of God, that this is not something that the devil would be doing. And they spoke blasphemy against him because their own egos, their own position in life was more important to them than to acknowledge what they knew to be from God. And Jesus says, hey, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit primarily come to do? And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to point people to Jesus. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the rejection of the one who forgives sins. And Judas rejected his salvation, willfully rejected his salvation, and therefore he left a eternal vacancy of this original apostleship. Because here's the thing. Judas needed to be replaced because in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, it says, you are those, Jesus said, who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are many who believe that the reason that Peter set to establish a replacement for Judas now is that before Pentecost came, that the 12 tribes of Israel would be properly represented. And this goes to the question of should they have waited for Paul? And I do think that it is an interesting question. Paul himself said that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, And I also think it's important though, it's still, um, we need to remember that the purpose of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. So I think that that the disciples felt that they were doing what needed to be done in regards to their understanding of Scripture, quoting from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And I think that here we have uh, this reality. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, we need to replace him so that the 12 are in place, the 12 that Jesus himself promised would rule on the thrones in the kingdom to come. So what did they utilize? They utilized Scripture to come to that. Prayer, prayer scripture. And then finally, they used wisdom or common sense. Look at verses 21 through uh, 26. First of all, 21 and 22 gave the qualifications for the selection. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So right here, Peter says, this is the qualification of being one of these original apostles, that they had to actually be with Jesus during his earthly work, during his ministry, and they had to be witnesses to his death and resurrection. So Paul fulfilled the second, but not the first. And so that's why a lot of people say that it could not have been Paul and needed to be one of these two men. The the two qualifications that they were looking for, common sense. If we are to be the original eyewitnesses, apostles in a way that cannot be be repeated, and this raises questions, do we believe the apostolic gift is for today? I do think that apostolic in, uh, in a small a understanding, if we think of it in terms of church planters, or those who actually go and start works, the works of God, 
in different places. That is an apostolic gift. Uh, but I think that this is u- a unique, unrepeatable reality where these were specifically eyewitnesses to the teaching, to the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That would be necessary for the gospel to gain grounds and authority and expansion. Uh, Paul had a unique witness because Jesus appeared to him in his glorified form and spoke directly to him. He actually selected him. Well, we're going to consider that too. How does God save people? Do we have a choice? Uh, And with Paul, not so much. With the eunuch, yeah. So how he saves people is, I would say, is it the same every time? Well, it's the same every time by the same person, by the work of Jesus. But the means by which God draws people into his kingdom seems to vary based upon his sovereign prerogative. And that's a very interesting conversation, which has caused divides in the church because some churches say he always does it this way. And other churches say he always does, always does it this way. And these are the fun things that we get to explore in the book of Acts. So here we see the qualifications is based upon common sense. Well, who amongst us has been with us from the beginning? And what is the selection? It says that they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I just want to point out one more thing about Judas. Who will take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place? I just want you to notice that phrasing is really, really haunting. Because I think that the essence of hell is a place where there is no relationship. It's a place, as, uh, as G.K. Chesterton said in Orthodoxy, it's a place where we have written written over our heads, um, I am my own. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. And there he goes to his own place, not a place of community, not a place of family, but in his total rejection, in his isolation, in his turning inward upon himself. Sin, when it has its full effect and grows into its ultimate ugliness, is the absolute eradication of relationship in any direction. You cannot know God, you cannot know others, and you will never know yourself. It is the blackness of, uh, of the soul. Uh, it, is, it is the flame without light. It is the eternal burning uh, with no illumination. It is a terrifying reality. And he says, and this has left a vacancy. And I think that this is the interesting and the confusing component. They pick two men that we've never heard of, and they pick two men that we never hear about again. I think that this is important for us. Does that mean that they're not qualified? No, the whole community, the 120 picked these two men. So they must have been godly men who fulfilled the qualifications that they were looking for. They were with Jesus. They they witnessed his death and his resurrection. And I think that this is important for us to understand is that we often think that the only people that really matter are those who are remembered. But we need to know that the church is built upon people we've never heard of. The greatest in the kingdom, Jesus said, will be the least. And I think that, that, it, that the expectations that we have, we view this with some sort of worldly lens, and we think these men must be lame because we never hear about them again. 
But that's not the purpose of Acts, is to tell every story of every saint. And there are endless stories being told. That's why the book of Acts isn't finished at the end, because we continue to tell that story. And our significance is not driven by our historical legacy. Our significance is driven by the God who we're told here knows the hearts of men. It's powerful. It's really powerful. I think that this isn't a testimony to their insignificance. I think it's a testimony to how the church actually has grown throughout the ages, which is on the shoulders of people we've never heard of. The people like you and I who just faithfully love Jesus and follow him and share him with others. And I think it gives us great significance. Our significance is not derived from what the world remembers about us. Our significance is derived from our faithfulness to King Jesus. So the final statement I will say, they cast lots for them. I can't tell you, all they are doing here is drawing on an Old Testament principle. It's nothing that Jesus ever did, but why didn't Jesus do it? Because Jesus was the first and truly spirit-filled man. He's the firstborn over a new creation. At his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him, and at that point, his ministry became empowered. It says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It is the Spirit that guided him into every situation. He worked and functioned under the influence of the Spirit. He is the ultimate picture, the reference point for what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And so they have not yet received the Spirit, and therefore they are left to once again draw upon common sense and the scriptural precedence for making decisions. And they go back to an old Levitical practice and they cast lots. And the lot falls on Matthias and he was numbered. So was this a decision made by God or by man? Don't answer that question because it doesn't say. We have to let it hang. This is the beautiful thing. How do we make decisions and understand the will of God? The first way that we seek out the will of God and make decisions is by what? Prayer. We pray. Second thing that we see, Scripture. God has not left us to our own devices. He has actually given his heart and his mind to us through his word. His scripture, we don't worry about the little bit that we don't understand because what we do understand is plenty to guide us and direct us in our daily lives. Third, when the scripture is gray, we utilize wisdom, but we actually have a fourth component that is not mentioned in here that's gonna come next week. And we live on the other side of Pentecost and we have the Holy Spirit. After Pentecost, they never make decisions like this again. In fact, it often will state when God's stamp of approval is upon it because it will say, and the Spirit directed them, the Spirit spoke to them, the Spirit guided them, the Spirit, it seemed good to the Spirit. And so what we see is that the moment they become Spirit-filled, they actually have the authentication of their decisions being confirmed or denied based upon the Spirit's presence in their lives. Paul said, I tried to come to you, but the Spirit stopped me. I wanted to come here and the Spirit spoke to me and said, do this. Notice, we have that reality. That is our reality. We don't have to cast lots. We seek God in prayer, in his scriptures. We utilize common sense inspired. It's wisdom inspired and influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. Aren't you grateful that you don't live on the other side of Pentecost before the Spirit had come? where you're like, I hope God's in this decision. We don't have to live like that anymore. May we be a people of prayer. 
May we be a people of the word. May we be a people of spirit-filled wisdom. Amen?